Welcome to the Tech Trends Podcast, everyone. We are here to discuss the latest manufacturing technology research and news. I am Benjamin Moses, the Director of Manufacturing Technology, and I'm here with... Stephen Lamarca, Manufacturing Technology Analyst. Steve, how was your weekend? It was great. And it's let's great. not forget that we are joined, we are joined by uh, our producer, editor, and AV engineer, the content kid himself, Adam Gambrell, the hardest working person in IMTS show business. Wow. That's quite did, uh, did, did Jules put you up to that? No, I did that. <laughs> oh, really? Because oh, I, I wanted flattered. to say that you were the hardest working. <laughs> Jules would say it's her. I'm flattered. You know, Jules is very selfless, so she would probably also say that. But nice. I, I very much appreciate it. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Glad Adam's Couldn't do without here. you. And recognize. Well done, Steve. You know what kind of sandwich I made? What? Tell <laughs> me about your sandwich. <laughs> I like the, my cuts thin, uh, cut, my meat's cut thin. Okay. So sliced uh, turkey. Okay. Um, <gasps> I guess I'm going to tell you. And then I put uh, provolone cheese. Okay, nice. That's it. Nice. On some uh, split up honey wheat bread. So I switched it up this weekend. Yep. And I went turkey. Turkey, nice. Yeah. I went turkey, and I typically don't like turkey. I can't stand turkey. It's like no. the most flavorless um, <laughs> cold cut you can get. Sure. And I'm like, dude, I've been doing ham and cheese. I've been doing honey-baked ham and American cheese a lot lately. Yeah. So let's switch it up. Yep. And I just go to mosey on over to the Walmart deli. They Walmart have a deli. deli. You can get fresh-cut meats there. You sure it's not plastic? It might be, but you know, it, it tastes great. Okay, Let me tell you right now. They've got like a handful of different turkeys. You can get smoked okay. turkey. You can get oven roasted turkey. Wow. You can get low sodium turkey, which probably means plastic. <laughs> um, I want a low sodium craze. Um, you can do, uh, there's another one that's uh, black peppercorn crusted oh, turkey. That's good. And then the one that caught my eye that was like, oh my God, I'm definitely buying this turkey. Yeah. Cajun spice turkey. Cajun spice Cajun that's a good call. rubbed turkey. Like, like there's... The shell of you it know, is... it, it's it's like it, the turkey almost looks marbled and oh. there's like streaks of red in it. Oh, and it's like oh man, that's ca- that's so cayenne pepper. In, they've injected the meat. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's almost that's, like that's solid. It's like carved, deep fried, spicy turkey, and I put that on brioche with Munster, Munster. and Polish mayonnaise. <laughs> I forgot you had Polish mayonnaise. French brioche, Polish mayonnaise. When I went to the store, I got turkey, a box of turkey, and a box of roast beef. Nice. Love roast beef. So this weekend, I was wanted to mention that uh, it was a long holiday weekend. I had a lot of free time on my hands. Instead of just staring at my wife and kid, I decided to make it productive. You cleaned the kitchen? No, it'll always be dirty. Okay. I once in a while I'll do the dishes. But I figured this is a similar application to when I was uh, working back at Eden, where when uh, times would slow down, that's the best time to do some level of process improvement. So um, you're conflicted when the times are busy so when aerospace ramps up quite a bit your demand for um, producing parts on time is really really high yeah um if you're holding up an engine is holding up an aircraft i mean there's sev- severe penalties once you're holding up the final delivery to you the don't want to be a bottleneck you don't want to you don't want to make the news because you late for a delivery right so when things slow down that's the best time for some level of process improvement so over the weekend um i was running some um uh, some uh process uh, home improvement stuff where I was uh, putting a, a tint on the window. Uh, this big, a tall window that I had. Since I'm putting a shade, I was just going to put a frosted tint on it. Came out great uh, because I had time to do it. I had time to monkey around with it. Also, I was running some network stuff into the attic uh, to help um, uh, run some uh, equipment up there. Um, but in uh, applying this to a business world, right? So you've got uh, your biggest constraint, which is time, that has been reduced if you're in a downturn. 
that you have tons of time on. Assume you're able to uh, maintain the resources. And that's one uh, caveat I'll add to this. If you're able to keep your resources during the downturn, the biggest thing that can do is um, start implementing your continuous improvement. But before you get to get get to that, while times are busy, you need to maintain a warehouse of things to do. I mean, we're doing that now in any type of articles that we're writing. We're just warehousing tons and tons of information. So when the time is right, we're able to implement that. Some basic tools that also are important. So you've got a list of projects that you've got when things are busy. Uh, delegating some of the business plan, the business side of it. So everyone always has ideas on how to solve a problem. Yes. But connecting your problem and solution to what the business is going to gain is very, very important. And that connection is misunderstood quite a bit on a lot of layers of manufacturing. Yeah. So once you start getting out of the business side of the uh, manufacturer uh, or the the you know, the sales, logistics, magic side of it, and you're just on the operation side of it, you kind of lose a little bit of that connection of, hey, I also have a profit to make, right? So right. connecting that and educating the workforce of, hey, what's the return on investment if I implement this? And giving them basic tools. So using five whys, that gets you pretty far. Um, before you even get to the statistical stat problem solving, uh, ergonomics is a really underrated problem that can be solved, that needs to be solved more often. Uh, there's a couple of uh, tests that had to be done. So on our couplings, we had a functional test. We had to wrap okay. our couplings around a fake or um, an inspection gauge and latch it and then torque it down, torque down the nut. Mm-hmm. So the operator had to do that 100% of our couplings. So we produce 20,000 couplings a year. Yeah. That's 20,000 times this thing that's, that's been tested. The operator has to do that. So if you're able to automate that process so the person is holding a gun that they have to react the to torque to and things like that, right. that extends their life, that extends their productivity. So being able to Im- implement those things to allow the operator to do... Um, uh, improve your ergonomics and uh, improve your missed opportunity rate helps a lot. Also, there's a tool called AdCar, which is super useful. Yeah. Um, and you know, just implementing standard processes uh, or standard documentation for implementing these processes that's super useful. In terms of, uh, it helps remove the subjectivity of, hey, I've got an idea. Let me implement this. If you follow these five steps and it comes out correct at the end, go ahead and do it. So the delegation and the standard process are my two number one seeds for implementing continuous improvement during the downturn. So just something to think about as, uh, you know, over the weekend and as you're implementing stuff. So what's the test bed up to this week? So the test bed last week, better said, well, this week we're going to plan on moving forward, cutting brass, doing, you know, continuing with our project list. Making I, chips. I want to, I actually want to get back into making chips finally awesome. you know, after so much downtime. Yep. Um, so of course I want to continue turning brass plates into watch dials and I want to get some more people from outside of AMT on our test bed doing some projects. Um, and there's a good good potential for that happening in the future. I'm really excited for that um, okay. with the new school year happening and such. Um, but to go back to what happened last week, I dropped the old motors on yep. the B table and swapped in some new ones. So nice. just, just to be clear, there are eight motors on that pocket NC and the B table has two of them. Okay. So. So if, if if you remember from last episode, I well, if you remember for like the past six months, <laughs> we've been having some issues with the B table. The right. B table stalls. You'd be you'd be rotating it, and it would just start stuttering. It would freeze in place and start stuttering, and that was from the belt uh, rubbing up on the cover plate, and it just it it generates too much friction for the motors to surpass, and the B table totally stops rotation, yep. and the machine sadly doesn't recognize that so it keeps going with every other axis right um and then you get you get a scrapped part or sure. part that needs to be scrapped 
Um, after doing some, trying some short-term fixes and doing a back and forth with Pocket and C multiple times, one of which being trying to work a deal to get the best price possible <laughs> with upgrading the machine yep. for a good long-term uh, fix. Um, of Pocket and one that we could both agree on was Pocket NC sent us some new stepper motors okay. with a revised design on their pulleys because yep. ultimately the belt was slipping off the center of the axis of the pulleys. And so they sent us some new stepper motors because the pulleys are permanently attached to the stepper motors. So you have to do an entire motor replacement. Fortunately, all we had to pay for was shipping. Pocket NC is fantastic with customer support. Um, but it did last week, did the, uh, the, um, the motor swap, right? Um, it was easier than expected. Okay. Um, took a little bit of time, but not too much time. Sure. Like I, I, I think I, uh, set aside the entire morning (laughs) of Thursday or Wednesday to uh, do this swap. And, uh, really it only took about, I'd say if I can't remember, of course, um, it, it either took, you know, a half hour to an hour to do the whole thing from like unbolting everything to just start unbolting everything to having everything the cover plate fully resecured to sure. the uh, machine which that's, it hasn't been in the past six months right that's pretty you know, solid. only like six of the 12 bolts holding the cover right. plate on <laughs> were securing it now i've got all 12 bolts back Good. on because i don't have a need to open it up ever again it's not a quick change uh, yeah it's feature. not a quick man it's not a quick change at all it's all right. it's i have have you ever watched like a video of um of people doing like a uh uh um a car shop doing sure. an oil change on a Ferrari. Sure. Everybody's used to one oil drain plug right. on a, on a car engine. Yep. Ferraris have like eight. <laughs> There's eight excessive. drain yeah. plugs because there's right. eight, it pulls up in so many areas. Sure. You have to sure. dra- drain every spot. And it's Ferrari. And, and it's a Ferrari. <laughs> um, so what's your, what's your key takeaway of going through that process? What's the key thing that you, uh, the key takeaway was it did just about take the entire morning. Okay. didn't quite take the entire morning, but the, the actual, process the actual motor swap itself actually wrenching on the machine took half hour to an hour and then the rest of the morning if you could say that um was all testing okay to make sure it's fully functional and everything's good to go and because i was you know having seen this machine fail on me so many times i wanted to test the hell out of it that you know uh, before putting all 12 bolts back on that's super valuable i was implementing a quick change fixture back at a previous company and it's one of those where it uses retention knobs to hold down the base plate yeah and i thought it had it, it said like thousands of pounds of clamping force i thought that's great I, I just need one retention knob and one clamp to hold it down right as soon as i put in the uh, cutter started engaging it's a big slot cutter yeah and of course it's one retention knob there's nothing to counteract the uh, torque of it so the whole fixture just spun around and crashed the entire machine. I was like, oh, what did I do wrong? I thought there's enough clamping force. There was a big dummy that I'd need two to counteract. I need two retention knobs to counteract. So yeah. the testing of, you know, manufacturing equipment is fairly important. And, right. you know, being able to do that in a, um, not uh, in a uh, closed environment so there aren't significant repercussions, that's pretty important. So right. I'm glad you're able to test it. And, and I also, like, it, it helped me um – rebuild a perspective if you would of um defining if something's well made or not okay because you know we we, we like to think that certainly as as a car buyer uh, you know somebody would like to think that you know if it never breaks it must be well made sure you know but the truth is what was nice about taking this apart the machine apart and doing this fix was 
it's not really until you open something up and take it apart and then put new components in and put it back together. Can you tell if something's really well made? True. And it, it gave me an opportunity to really like taking apart the that trunnion on the pocket NC really allow me to allowed me to see how well made it was. Cool. And it, it is a beautifully made machine. Awesome. Like just the, the tensioning sliders sure. on the belt and the, to keep the tension right when you mount the motor uh, each motor, because um, it's a dual drive uh, table, um, it actually like you don't tighten it down right away. You wait till you get the belt on first, mm-hmm. and then you can adjust the tension further. There are so many ways to adjust the tension, okay. but it's not excessive. Sure, and it was just like this, yeah. this is a really well made machine. And that's they just true. failed on the pulleys, <laughs> the initial design on those pulleys. But other than that, it was great. That is true. I mean, when you say something is well-made, a lot of people think about it being manufactured properly. Yeah. But it's also, how was it designed so you can mm-hmm. access and, you know, how was the layout? So, like, one of the first cars I had was a Mercury Tracer. Yeah. Similar Ford Escort, a wagon. And to change, like, spark plugs, I had to remove, like, 30, 40 things just to get to a one spark right. plug. Like, it's a longitudinal four-cylinder why, why, or transverse four-cylinder. Why am I doing all this? Yeah. So yeah, I completely agree with that. Yeah, there's a little more thought put into things. It, it feels was, more. Yeah, it, it was really reassuring in the machine as well. Cool. So I got a couple of articles here. Awesome. The first one I want to talk about was it's labeled the world's smallest accelerometer points to new era in wearables, comma gaming. Worst title in the world, but it's from physics.org. Yeah. Well. So oh my god. There's only so much I can give them. Having come from that side of academia, you people, they get a lot worse, <laughs> man. <laughs> no. The, so the takeaway here is. Two interesting things. One, they're talking about graphene again. Not my favorite topic, but whatever. Also, this is a research from Aachen, Germany. So it's German. Yeah. Uh, so they talked about the world's smallest uh, accelerometer. So in this case, they're talking about sensors getting from, uh, let's see, they talk about sensors going from micro to nano size. Wow. So I think that an order size magnitude smaller is a pretty important takeaway. So the illustration they have, they've got some coin here. It's European coin. I don't know what size it is, how much it's worth. But they also have a pen, and this accelerometer is, you know, about the size of the ball on the ballpoint pen. Yeah. That's pretty strong. So the idea of being able to shrink your accelerometer to that small kind of opens up a lot of new opportunities for... Um, you can put an accelerometer in anything. Almost anything, yeah. So let's think about or, this more. Or another or good nothing. use case, <laughs> or nothing. Or you can put multiple accel- accelerometers as a redundancy. Yeah, that's true. It's like, you know, I, I, most... Mostly every computer and even phone out there has a multi-core processor. Right. I remember when the PlayStation 3 came out and they're like, it has an eight-core, a nine-core <laughs> processor. That's absurd. That wasn't for power. No. That was for if, like, three of them fail in right. the manufacturing <laughs> process, which was very common. That is true. So that's, 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 that's awesome. Put an accelerometer in everything and put four of them in there. Yeah, and that's the thought I was thinking about. That's the thought process. So the article talks about where I was in gaming. So sure, that's, that's a high-volume, high high marketplace for that. But if you look at that technology being small and being able to package that into manufacturing space, you could put a bunch of these in fluid. So mm-hmm. you can see, you know, where the fluid is, the fluid, if it's moving around, how buoyant it is, that type of thing. Wow. And also if it's small enough, you could put in consumables. If I put it in a cutting tool, that'd be pretty cool too. So yeah. that's something to think about. It'll, it's, um, the, this is a pretty cool enabling technology that could open the door for a lot of different things as we get into digital manufacturing and be able to, want to get more data uh, from a lot of different uh, locations on the machine. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, you got uh, something you want to walk us through? Yeah, this is a, um, I picked this article 
because it, it actually kind of bothered me. It kind of grinded my gears a little <laughs> bit. Um, and uh, it is DSM, um, Royal Haskening, DHV, and CLEAD Design. Those are companies, by the way. Okay. 3D printed an FRP pedestrian bridge. I don't know anything that you said. Fiber oh. reinforced polymer okay. <laughs> bridge. They 3D yeah, printed sure. a footbridge. A footbridge. That's cool. It is 2019. Why are we still talking about 3D printing footbridges? This that's was cool good. 10 years ago. Yeah, that's Back fair. when I was in like college. Sure. And there, people are still making footbridges and acting like it's a breakthrough thing. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure this community in wherever in Europe really needed a footbridge, sure. I guess. I guess. And why not make it out of, uh, instead of using wood planks and steel beams, let's 3D print it make because it we've cool. got a million robots. Make it look organic. Yeah. But, but, uh, so do they, still so they use robots to print the entire thing in section? So I do remember an article about four years ago, five years ago exactly. when I joined uh, AMT. And they were um, uh, 3D printing a metallic bridge using yeah. robots. Now, that was kind of interesting a bunch of years ago. Um but again, it's back to the problem that additive has. I think it's the application of it in manufacturing. Sure, that's kind of cool. Robots have been welding for a while. Mm -hmm. It's it's the problem yet beauty. Yeah, exactly. So, and that's what three D printing is on a large scale like that. It's uh, scaled up uh, welding. Right? Yeah, it is. But well, on that particular case, what's the what's the design initiative? What problem are they solving that's unique that a wooden or steel structure couldn't solve? Are they saving material? Do they want to just spend money on a robot? It, I don't understand what problem that additive had to solve. Is it you know saving material? Maybe they don't want to cut down wood, or I, it's it's I, I don't like that lack of problem statement. What I'm just trying to get at is we are this far into additive becoming or be, not becoming being an actual means of manufacturing, sure. and we're still generating buzz <laughs> material. <laughs> a lot of buzz it. material. And it's like stop. Yeah. You know what I am excited for? A slight side tangent is robotics getting to movies. So using yeah. robots for uh, uh, as a means to hold a camera. I've seen a bunch of uh, articles on uh, how commercials they've used. And the cool thing is they're developing software and visualizations to understand the position of these cameras so they can, I would see, map out the story from the storyboard where they want to record. So the tools that they're developing for this, I think, may help our manufacturing community quite a bit. One thing that does scare me a little bit is I don't think these are collaborative robots, and there are humans like right next to these robots. I'm a little yeah. worried that and someone's going to get hurt. These robots are huge. <laughs> they're by not the small. Way. They're not. They're not buying like the cheap ones, like the desktop guys. They're buying like the full scale. Yeah, they're they're buying your Corvette type. You're robot. right. You're right. They're buying industrial, and they're not buying collaborative. No, they're, no. they're buying industrial and then modding them themselves. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see how far it goes. There's. Uh, I'll keep an eye on that. The last That's article I wanted point. to talk about is from AdvancedManufacturing.org. Uh, and they talk about light weighting, which probably isn't a word, but they're using it. Uh, new phase in light weighting. So in the automotive, they see a significant shift from uh, steels to more aluminum in their um, cars. And you can see that mm -hmm. from Ford commercials a bunch of years ago when they talked about using their uh, military-grade aluminum, wow. which is kind of annoying when they yeah. depict it that way. Aerospace-grade Yeah, aluminum. and then Chevy was talking about how they're still using steel and blah, blah, blah. Like the M16 has had an aluminum receiver since right. NAM, bro. <laughs> yeah. So the interesting thing that they talk about was the amount of material that they bring in. So they're shifting to, now they don't give a baseline, but uh, for automotive capacity for this one uh, aluminum mill, 200 tons for 2020. For aluminum, that's a large volume of material that they're going to use. 
Um, and the real problem that they're trying to solve is a shift for emissions. So there's a lot of debate on whether or not emissions will go back to previous standards, but where they're headed to is trying to meet current emissions. And one of the ways they could do that now is just by reducing the weight. Yeah. Just by going to uh, lighter, stronger materials. So go shifting to aluminum and including some magnesium. And of course, you still can have some steel, but only in those key critical areas. So they talk about a couple of use cases where FCA saved 66 kilos on one car just sh- shifting straight straight to aluminum. 66 uh, kilos. The Pacific, Pacifica minivan, everyone's favorite minivan, <laughs> saved 168 pounds on the structure and 250 pounds overall just from shifting. I mean, that... Then also the article talks about the manufacturing side of it. So if I've got a big die for um, steel, I'm stepping steel fenders, steel quarter panels, steel structure, shifting to aluminum, what do I need to do? And it, the article briefly touches on that it's a fairly easy shift. You do yeah. have to account for some of the shrink back um, because they are a little bit different. Um, maybe the heat processing, depending on the grade of aluminum that you're using, but for the most part, it's not as difficult as a lot of people would be concerned about. Um, the article also gets into a little bit of electric vehicles, not in, in the direction that I wanted to. They're talking about uh, trying to save weight so they can extend the battery range also. Sure. What was the, what was the extent that you wanted them to talk about? Uh, more of the impact to manufacturing, sub, more on the subtractive manufacturing side. Gotcha. So the committee that I, I uh, manage, um, the liaison for, the concern that they have since a lot of the membership produces subtractive equipment especially for automotive, if yeah. there is a significant shift to electrification or electrified vehicles. Then there's going to be less gearboxes. Less gearboxes, no internal combustion. You know, there still is a need for a gearbox. There's still, you have to go in reverse. You still have to maybe shift one or two Absolutely. gears. You still have to produce bad, uh, battery compartments and things like that. But mm-hmm. the volume of manufacturing is what they're concerned about. Right. Now, that's a shift purely on uh, cars. What they're also concerned about is if they looked at the whole e-mobility trend is, okay, maybe I don't need a car. They're thinking more broadly, I don't, I don't buy a car or the con- consumption of cars has gone down where maybe they're using scooters, maybe they're renting bicycles, maybe they're just Ubering around. So the concept of the internal combustion car as a main method of transportation may actually diminish in the next bunch of years. So we're still discussing that and we're working through that on the committee level to understand what the trends are and how to prepare for those trends. So it was a interesting debate that we had. Yeah. Lightweighting is really cool. And, and it's, you know, it, it, engines are getting for cars going back to automobiles. They're, they're getting more efficient, yep. way more efficient right. simultaneously by some miracle, way more powerful yeah, too. I completely forgot about that. So all of a sudden we're crushing it, crossing the thousand horsepower, um, and throughout some of our engine, like every other day now. Yeah. So like, and they're still meeting emissions requirements. Yeah, it's absurd how powerful those cars have come nowadays. And so it, the engine that I have on my 135 is an inline six. Mm-hmm. I got, when I bought it, it was like 250 horsepower. I modified it, get about 300. Yeah. The M2 competition that you could buy now is what, 350 from the dealership, 350 yeah. horsepower? That's a significant change. Now mine is pretty old, it's 2008. Yeah. In 10 years, that's pretty absurd using this basically the same block. Basically the same engine. Right. It's mind blowing. Right. Or mind bottling. How, how, <laughs> mind bottling. How about how about the the um oh man Mercedes Benz the GLA AMG, the yep. small SUV yeah. Yeah. that has the uh two liter right. turbocharged four cylinder that makes like four hundred and twenty five. Yeah. It's it's around four hundred horsepower. For a little too That is nineteen eighties <laughs> group B rally car spec <laughs> in something that has a warranty. Yep. Yeah. 
That's but, impressive. And it's, it's crazy, but that's bringing, bringing it back to lightweighting. I, I want to ask you this, and it's probably not going to get the answer I want to hear because, <laughs> because we're both car nuts sure. and we know what the, the better years back in the day were like. <laughs> and what is a lightweight car to you? How much does a lightweight car weigh in pounds to you? Uh, like a production car? Yeah. Or like a, okay. Yeah. So, lightweight. Yeah. so realistically, anything below 2,800 pounds. Okay, yeah, that's you're tough. old school. That's yeah. that's really lightweight. Yeah, that's yeah. super lightweight. That's super lightweight. It's hard to achieve. You're talking like significant changes to the material. Now I, my I, car is like thirty four, thirty five hundred pounds. Yeah, so I feel like in the nineties, the average car weighed twenty nine to thirty two hundred pounds. Sure, and now there's like you know, a family car is gonna weigh. <laughs> you'll you're lucky if. Like like what was sub three thousand right, pounds right. is now sub four thousand sure. pounds. Yeah, yeah, that's an and, interesting. Shift. Yeah, and that's the dilemma I face right now. So as the my car gets older, I'm looking for a replacement. And of course, I'm going from a two door coupe to that's about thirty four hundred pounds to this big giant force uh, four door that's gonna, probably going to be four thousand pounds. Now I pray it's five hundred horsepower, but we'll see what I can what can I can swing. Yeah, but yeah, it's waiting is really tough. It's and tough. It's, and this is based on the com- consumer growth too. So the, I, I think I've noticed that that one specific model, how they developed it back then, they try and mold it to how that generation has grown and their tastes have evolved too. So if you look at Subaru and how they evolved their STI, mm-hmm. so it started off the super lightweight, super econo box Roadster, uh, their four door with the giant wing, yeah. evolved to more of a sleek style as the generation has become older, increased weight, increased the comfort. Um, so we'll see. Yeah. yeah, interesting times. Fun. Thanks, Steve. This is a great uh, podcast. Thank you, Ben, and thank you, Adam. Thanks, Adam. You're welcome. Bye, Have everybody. A good day, everybody. Bye. Bye.